Hello, this is Jeff Treisman. This is Matt Schmidt. And you're listening to Impolitik. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me, I saw the same pictures as you did. You had people in that group that were there to protest the taking down of, to them, a very, very important statue and the renaming of a park from Robert E. Lee to another name. So you know what? It's fine. You're changing history, you're changing culture, and you had people, and I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists, because they should be condemned totally. But you had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis and white nationalists, okay? And the press has treated them absolutely unfairly. Joining us today, Rabbi Ron Fish, who is a graduate of Brandeis University in the Jewish Theological Seminary. He has served as a congregational rabbi in three communities in the Northeast for 25 years, most recently as the senior rabbi of Temple Israel in Sharon, Massachusetts. He is a member of the executive committee of the Massachusetts Board of Rabbis and has worked through the years as a committed and enthusiastic partner for interfaith dialogue. He is a new Northeast Division Director of Anti-Semitism Education and Advocacy at the Anti-Defamation League. Ron, welcome to In Politic. Thank you very, very much. Great to be here. So, Ron, what are the issues of hate or discrimination facing local communities in the Northeast and really throughout the United States? Well, we're speaking today um, uh, after the events of uh, Buffalo, where we saw once more um, the extremism that has been on display in many ways, um, through, through the centuries in America, but um, periodically it kind of dives below the surface. Um, and we see that extremism kind of rising again. It is shocking, it is profoundly, extraordinarily dangerous to do anything but pay attention to the fact that our, um, our world right now is beset by all kinds of tensions. We're still in the midst of a pandemic. We are experiencing high levels of inflation. Um, there is a concern about cultural change uh, on the, the right. There's concern about um, the questions about our survivability because of climate change, generally perceived to be issues that are of, of urgent regard on the left. Um, and uh, we're awash in guns and we are awash in an internet that provides nothing but, um, you know, there's nothing but amplification of anxiety and hate uh, that comes from the social media. So with all of that context, it is not surprising um, that the ADL has observed a stunning rise in anti-Semitic acts along with other biased crimes over the course of uh, 2021. Um, the, during the course of the entire year, uh, there was a 43% uh, increase in anti-Semitic incidents in, um, in New England. Um, but across the country, it was more than 30% increase as well. And these spikes, um, some of them are in the form of uh, harassment. Some of them are in the form of, uh, of statements of hate, um, either in person or online or other forms. 
but many of them have taken um, the form of a physical confrontation. Um, and when there are 10 dead African-Americans in a supermarket in Buffalo, um, we can do nothing but say we are all commonly joined together in grief and in danger. The shooter in Buffalo who drove three hours looking for the best place to kill the highest number of African-Americans, bizarrely, um, his screed that he published included um, about 30 percent uh, was a direct attack on the idea that Jews are the uh, are the the nefarious demonic force that is bringing so-called uh, replacement peoples, darker skinned, less developed peoples in their minds, to replace white Christian America. Um, that idea, as much as it seems like it's beyond the fringe. Um, has been articulated even by people in mainstream forums, as, for instance, Tucker Carlson on, on Fox News. And we are, um, we are called upon to take note of the fact that these, these examples of extremism are profoundly dangerous. They are real. They're evident across the country, including in New England, where one might assume that there's uh, less to be worried about. And... Um, and the, we, we are beset by a real danger that these forces are going to continue, maybe even accelerating the process of pulling us apart. There's this other side of the coin as well, and that is the Jewish community faces um, pressures because of the political situation in Israel and the Middle East that are, um, that are somewhat unique. Um, there are certainly large communities of people, including many Jews, who criticize Israel, who are forthright in their uh, either views of Israel as engaging in bad policies or maybe even worse than bad policies. And much of that, in fact, I'd say almost all of that is what you get yourself into when you want to enter the world of, uh, of international affairs, when you want to be a state, when you want to be a player in the world. So the Jewish people signed up for that with Zionism. That's fine. But what's happened of late, and we saw it also in 2021, is some of this extreme expression of disagreement has lurched beyond the realm of politics into targeting of individual Jews and targeting of Jewish institutions in ways that can only be described as drawing upon similar kind of mythologies about the, uh, the international Jew, the, uh, the Jew that controls the media, the Jew that is demonic again in their attempt to manipulate the world for their own narrow benefit. That point of view, was evident in the fact that in May of 2021, there was a conflict between Israel and Gaza again. That conflict produced all kinds of tragedies inside the confines of the conflict. But what it also produced here was a spike in anti-Semitic incidents, including a physical assault uh, on diners in a Los Angeles kosher restaurant, physical assaults on people in the New York area, um, and the speech that one might consider to be part of a natural discourse on Israel clearly went way, it, it jumped the, 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 the train, jumped the rails and became this incredibly dangerous, um, observable, demonstrable, and notable uh, data set of attacks on Jews. And so the demonic Jew that controls the world 
seems to, rather than being in a strictly, you know, left-right spectrum, uh, it seems to be kind of that the left and right have met in the back, as it were, and both the extreme ends that are filled with this rage and tension because of a world that is so complicated right now have expressed their anxieties in the form of, um, uh, of, of deep, deep paranoia about Jews. So I, I've done uh, quite a bit of data uh, analysis using the Anti-Defamation League's data set and was you know, looking at trends in extremism and terrorism in the United States. And I discovered there has been over an 800% increase in the number of right-wing incidents. And that can be extremism, uh, hate speech, propaganda, all the way up and including to acts of physical violence and terrorism. Um, and it all stems to the right, which leads me to think or ask this next question, um, you know, when you look around the United States, I mean, what should be our focus in terms of the ADL or local communities uh, in terms of tackling or addressing this addressing this rise in extremism in the United States? I don't think there's any question. And again, I'm brought back immediately to Buffalo. There's no question that the extremism on the right, which is rooted in historic white supremacy, deep sense of racism a panic about the uh, the genocide of the white race, this whole you know incomprehensible kind of lunacy based narrative, that world is filled with people with weapons, in some cases with militias, and it is filled with uh, a real interlocking uh, series of, of acts of mass violence, which indicate extraordinary danger. Um, you know, the acts in Buffalo uh, are linked to the uh, mass casualty, mass murder events in El Paso, in Pittsburgh, at the, po- at the, at the Tree of Life Synagogue, Poway. It's linked to attacks against mosque in New Zealand, in Christchurch, New Zealand, and linked to attacks uh, actually in Norway as well. All of those mass murder events which on some level could be perceived to be, you know, lone actors kind of, we have to deal with mental illness is kind of a refrain that comes up again and again. Actually, when one looks at them, they're deeply interconnected. And for that reason, there's no question this issue of white supremacy extremism with violence is the most urgently dangerous. What uh, our CEO at ADL has said, Jonathan Greenblatt, is um, these are storms like hurricanes. We know what they are. We know what they look like. Uh, they are incredibly dangerous and they are, they are bad and getting worse. Um, and we have to be on guard against them. Rabbi, so I've always been fascinated that this is called the Anti-Defamation League. In other words, that you are starting from the standpoint that what you have to police is defaming speech. Uh, I wonder if you can comment on that for a little bit. Yeah, no, uh, ADL, first of all, was founded in 1913. So uh, I'm not sure if the word league in that context means something a little different than perhaps what it does in ours. But, you know, at the time of the emergence of the League of Nations, uh, you know, the, the, just a little while later, I guess comic books are making the justice league, uh, the, and the NFL and, and other kinds of leagues were emerging. I think the term league, first of all, before we get to the anti part of anti-defamation, uh, suggests something about the ambitions of the people who founded 
1913, a Jewish man, Leo Frank, was lynched um, in Atlanta for a supposed crime. Uh, one, the only instance of a Jewish person being lynched in the history of that particular br brutal and racist practice, which of course targeted thousands of uh, black people, thousands of African-Americans over decades. Um, but it was founded because there was a sense that there's um, a pervasive and enduring, a tolerated anti-Semitism, which exists within a great portion of Western civilization. And it, it was important for the Jewish community to be united to what they said was to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure equal and fair treatment to all. That, that's the, uh, the, two, the dual mission of ADL. Um, and so in that really beautiful, I think, dual role, hybrid role, you can't work for your own protection without noticing that others are targeted and you can't work truly to protect uh, other communities and ignore the fact that one's own community is in the, the crosshairs as well. So the, the, the mission as defined in 1913, before World War I, was to ad address these trends. Um, ADL has always been and continues to be uh, deeply committed to the First Amendment and to speech uh, as a basic human freedom. Speech we like. But wait, wait, I gotta I got jump in there, right? So the First Amendment says the government can't abridge speech, but you are not the government, right? And I wanna get at this idea that in order to perhaps prevent action, behavior, right? anti-Semitic attacks, the first thing you have to do is police these, these instances of demonizing speech. So let, let's just, let, let me clarify. Yes, the First Amendment says the, that the government actually says the Congress can't uh, control speech uh, and it can't limit speech. Uh, uh, and that's the function of uh, a limited government that to say that laws that address behavior are acceptable laws that address speech are not. When human beings, when individuals, when citizens or groups of citizens police, which is a, 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 the term of art you used, what, what's going on has nothing to do with government action. It doesn't have to do with shutting down. What it has to do is responding to speech with speech, which is exactly what the First Amendment seeks to pr protect and to elevate. So when people engage in racist rants that connect Jews or others with international pedophilia rings that are, uh, you know, involve politicians and, and involve the media, this crazy stuff which comes from QAnon, but which actually has roots back to uh, the Middle Ages with uh, blood libels against the Jewish community. When people speak that way, we probably can't stop it in the sense that we can't have the police come and stop them. But what we can do is we can police it by highlighting the deep evil, the, uh, the preposterous falsehoods that undergird this speech and to make sure that everybody is drowned with good speech in response to, uh, to bad speech. Um, it is uh, an endless challenge because in a free society, we actually don't police speech. All we can do is be on guard against the, the tendency for speech to be misused. Um, and, and, you know, it, with my earlier comments about 
social media in mind, when I say something about misusing speech, um, I think one of the goals ADL has is try to share with everybody the responsibility we have to each of us to speak the truth when we encounter false speech. And, and I think anybody and any community can be guilty of looking the other way when dehumanizing speech, when reckless and baseless, uh, you know, essentially blood libels are thrown around. Um, sometimes it's easier to just change a channel or to just uh, avoid that uncle around the Thanksgiving table um, where there's really a moral responsibility we have to all be members of this league that speaks out. Um, policing is a metaphor, right? To police in the sense of responding to speech with speech. Your comment actually about, you know, the mission of the ADL and the goal is not to essentially cancel speech. That's very similar to uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center and talking about uh, the uh, Confederate monuments. And they don't want to simply destroy the monuments. They actually want to put them in museums so people can understand the history and culture. Uh, and let's be frank, the ignorance behind what drove that that kind of ideology. Yeah. You know, when a Jew uh, backpacks through Europe, <laughs> gets a Eurail pass and goes to see all the great cathedrals and sites of Europe, you're confronted with stained glass windows sometimes that show uh, the benighted Jew. Uh, I don't know if you've seen these, but it's, you know, it's, it's usually a woman who was who is blind, who's put a, they put a blindfold on her to so, show how the Jewish people rejected Jesus in their blindness and how that's what doomed them to stumbling through history ever since. Um, it's painful to see those images. It's painful because they're still adorning churches to this day. Um, but the idea that that should be expunged and we shouldn't know that that was part of Christian culture and Christian understanding of Jews, that would be a tragedy. I think understanding what antisemitism has been through the centuries requires knowing those images and seeing how they've been, uh, you know, consistently uh, converted over time to even modern expressions of anti-Jewish uh, belief. And for sure, you know, when African-Americans remember their history in North America, uh, they would not, I believe, want the memory of their ancestors' oppression and degradation and dehumanization to be forgotten, they want it to be remembered. And those monuments are part of it, um, for sure, for sure. It just needs to be done in a way that doesn't celebrate the people who did the dehumanizing. It recalls them for who they were, which was, you know, human beings. That is to say, there's some probably things we need to learn from lots of communities uh, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't be involved in expunging history at all. We need to learn from history. I wanted to ask actually about or unpack the idea of, you know, tactically, how do we address these issues? And there seems to be somewhat uh, of a debate within the community, uh, particularly after Charlottesville. Right. The, the notion, as you know, President Trump said, that there's fine people on both sides. And there seemed to have been a shift in tactics where, well, let's highlight what these right-wing anti-Semitic voices are actually saying, 
right? What, what is actually the motivation behind White Lives Matter, that it's actually, you know, virulently racist organization, uh, anti-Semitic organization. And so there, on the one hand, there's this approach, let's take some of this propaganda and content and speech that they're using and let's publicize it. And let's make it clear, you know, there are not fine people on both sides. This is actually what they're saying. And we'll publicize it. Some seem to have pushed back on that kind of tactic and said, well, wait a minute, you're giving these, you know, um, neo-Nazis and, and racist groups uh, essentially another outlet, another uh, microphone to project their message and reach a wider audience. I'm curious, and I, I've kind of engaged myself in that debate, but where do you see or what is your opinion on that kind of uh, that tension within the community? I think there's a, a constant attempt to balance there. Look, just the shooter that uh, murdered uh, all these beautiful people in Buffalo, um, he released a statement that on the one hand really needs to be read so people understand the depth of vitriol, of hate, the willingness to commit murder. It doesn't come from from... Uh, a spontaneous instant of uh, of despair. It comes from a deeply learned, uh, heavily integrated racist worldview that is um, that is underneath the surface, and we need to uh, we need to fight it with full knowledge of just how widespread and dangerous it is. On the other hand, <laughs> on the other hand, giving it a voice does have the danger associated, which might, it might elevate the, uh, this same ideology. In fact, I believe instantly after the, the attack took place, uh, the ADL's Center on Extremism analyzed this uh, so-called manifesto and discovered, I think it was 63% was simply cut and pasted from earlier manifestos, from earlier mass murderers. And what that suggests is getting it out there just to get it out there may be a little naive because there's danger in doing so. It seems as though these are almost taken as like canonical works by this community. And the more they are built upon, the, the more they build a, a kind of a, a, a shooting by shooting monstrosity of a, a super text uh, that's their own new Bible. And do we really do ourselves uh, any service by publicizing that. So this is the tension. Um, <clears throat> you know, on a certain level, I'm inclined towards sharing it. Uh, my inclination is to share it because I don't think the bad guys won't have access to it if they want it anyway. And if they, if they have access to it, they'll still be building upon it. But the wider community needs to have, you know, a real... Uh, I'm not sure if it's a micro, if it's a, if it's a magnifying glass so we can really see what's going on underneath this rock, or if it's a mirror to see what's really going on within our, our society, but to take a good, hard look at it. Um, I, I think that what, what's mostly happened and ADL's participated in this is we have uh, shared excerpts. We've shared data about it without the actual text in certain cases. And many, many uh, news organizations have picked up from what we've shared, because uh, they can simply put it, you know, in our name, um, and, and so the the maybe the broader contours of what he wrote are are now known, e even if the text itself 
has not been shared. I think that's kind of the splitting of the baby that's been attempted both by the government and by many in public media. And it's certainly what we've been trying as well. I don't think there's ever really an answer to this. Like it's not a formulaic answer. It requires really taking a hard look. Speech is a real thing. It can be weaponized. And uh, I, I entirely support the First Amendment. We have to protect speech because it's so powerful. Uh, government shouldn't control it. Uh, people have that power in their own right as individuals, as human beings. But at the same time, um, it, like every weapon that we possess, uh, it's ultimately up to everyone to regulate it ourselves and to be cautious about the, the ways that we use that power. Because uh, the world is always potentially on a, uh, at a, at a breaking point. And we should be cautious about the fact that our words can push it in a good or a, a world-destroying direction. Uh, the world is filled with real existential dangers for human beings. And it's our responsibility to protect uh, ourselves, our children, and the next generations by, by managing our own speech thoughtfully. So you mentioned all the um, important work that the ADL does. Uh, going forward, how do you think the organization or communities writ large can work together in terms of working with law enforcement, in terms of working with educators and working with local activists within the community. Cause I find that's, you know, while I personally in my own work focus on public policy and counterterrorism policy, that's one area I'm really interested in learning is really how can the average person in a, a community in the United States do something? The beautiful thing is that there are organizations like the ADL um, there are comparable organizations from many other ethnic and religious communities that seek to work across boundaries to build a, a, a better future for their own families and for everybody. Um, so, you know, we are, we are, we work in alliances very, very often, you know, in addition to collecting the data, in addition to educating, in addition to lobbying, uh, we really spend a tremendous amount of time trying to find the right alliances to work together. So I think, you know, what I would tell people out there is to find your own community's social action outlet, your own community's public policy outlet, and, um, and work within that space, and then push that group to work outside of your bubble with others. I'll tell you, when I was in congregational life, we had a lovely relationship with the mosque in Sharon, where I lived, um, and that the mosque and, and their leadership and their community after the murders in Pittsburgh, um, they reached out to us. We had a, an extraordinary, we had a sign up on the wall from their youth group that, uh, that expressed their love and support for us, and that meant the world to us. And then after the murders in New Zealand at Christchurch, we, um, I went there for Friday prayers and our groups reached out to them. Um, I, think, I think the danger, especially when we're afraid, is the danger of retreating from the world. Um, that's, that's the danger, in, that's the cycle in which the dark forces win. Um, and so the alternative path is, um, is reaching out. 
and trying to find common cause, common purpose. Even when you may have other disagreements, we in the Muslim community have certain areas where there's pretty significant disagreement, uh, but we have a lot of agreement. And um, I think that that's, that's really important for us to, uh, to acknowledge as we work together. You know, you can't just work together by pretending there aren't areas where you may have something uh, that divides you, but that doesn't need to mean that you have to be, uh, you know, existentially divided from other people. Um, so my guess is um, America's future will be written by people who make the decision whether to retreat out of fear or whether to reach out in love and an understanding of uh, commonality, even across difference. A common theme I found with this podcast is wondering both for myself and our guests, whether we should be optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the United States. What's your thought on that? Um, I think the answer to that question is very, very straightforward. You should be neither. You should wake up every day and decide whether you want to improve this country and the world or whether you're throwing up your hands. And it, the days where you decide to make a difference are days to be optimistic. On the days where you don't, you're setting us on a path that could cause real reason for pessimism. Um, you know, I, one of the things I, I think is very important as a non-professional political scientist um, is to remember that democracy is not about elections alone. We tend to really focus on elections for obvious reasons, but democracy is a belief system that says human beings have dignity and they have a right to their own lives. We need to make laws to organize our society. That's what we do through elections. But um, we should walk around with the assumption that democracy calls on us to see other human beings as equal agents uh, as, as ourselves, equal in every way. And that is aspirational. It's not the way we actually live. There are people with enormous, enormous challenges to just get up in the morning and get to work. Um, and so that we can't be in this kind of naive space where we just say democracy means we're all equal, full stop. We got to build a society that allows us to, to express that equality. Um, but the belief system that we can that we can live that way is a fundamentally um, a source for optimism because every day we have that chance to see others in Jewish parlance as the image of God. Um, and every day that we do that is a victory for the forces of light. Rabbi Fish, I want to sincerely thank you for taking the time to speak with us here on in politic. I know you're super busy doing very important work. And it's by no means an exaggeration to say that the work that uh, you and the entire uh, ADL does for our society has critical ramifications for uh, the entire country. Uh, so thank you for your time and uh, please continue to do well, all the great work that uh, you're doing. Thank you so much. And do keep, keep doing your work. I, I think uh, places like your podcast sound like the perfect place to, to increase the, um, the opportunity to think for people broadly to think about what it means to be a citizen. So thanks for doing your work. Thank you. Now time for the debrief with Jeff and Matt. 
give me your hot take uh, about what you thought you know, Rabbi Fish said and the data and the work that you've done. Yeah, I think, um, I think, you know, everything he talked about is consistent with my research and I've looked at the ADL data and other data sets and, you know, it's, it's just a strictly academic exercise, but trying to understand what is the, you know, most prolific threat um, to the United States with respect to extremism and terrorism and it's very clear uh, that it's right-wing extremism uh, and terrorism uh, in a sense of neo-Nazi, white supremacy, anti-Semitic beliefs uh, is hands down um, the, um, uh, the number of incidents in the United States. It's, it's, it's the leader. Uh, and, you know, you, if you try to compare it to left-wing extremism, there's, there's no comparison. Um, it's almost a flat line if you look at the past five, six years. And, you know, I think, I think that, the work that the ADL is is doing is is so vitally important in this day and age, uh, both in terms of you know interfaith dialogue and community engagement, but also in terms of you know releasing information uh, and and data um, so we can better understand trends that we can better you know allocate our resources at you know the federal level certainly in homeland security and fbi but even local communities what should we be focused on think about the local police departments or you know local leaders of faith uh, and educators uh, and i think that role um that the adl is doing is is extremely important so you think the key is really to work at that local level and i guess the follow-up question on that would be how much do you blame you know national republicans for the development, for the support of the right wing and the need to, to, to go to the local level because you can't get any traction at the federal. Yeah, that, that's, that's an interesting point because, I mean, on the one hand, at the federal level, you know, we think Homeland Security and FBI, um, I, I think it's, the, and they've said it, I mean, the FBI director and Homeland Security have said that right wing extremism uh, is the greatest threat, uh, domestic threat to the United States today. Um, you know, we, they've done, you know, at the local level, though, that, you know, scholars and academics and think tanks have done, you know, nationwide surveys of uh, local law enforcement, um, several surveys over the past decade or so. And most of the responses to these surveys by local law enforcement have all said that right wing extremism, militia movements, anti-Semitic uh, uh, and neo-Nazi beliefs and sovereign citizens um, are the greatest threat to their, their local communities. Um, and if you think about it, you know, what what can be done or what should be done? Uh, I think it's got to start at the, the grassroots community level, um, you know, in terms of building these bridges between different faiths, different belief systems, raising awareness in communities, working with educators and school systems, uh, despite what they, they might try to do otherwise. And let's say Florida, for example, uh, but having those conversations is important. Thinking about the, the, the important role that local police and law enforcement serve and um, at, when a threat actually emerges. Uh, I think a lot of folks tend to, you know, um, think about the federal level, but, you know, it's going to be your local police officer, your community uh, police officer, who's going to be the first person to respond to a threat. Um, and, you know, uh, it, this ties into the bigger debate of, you know, uh, defunding the police, which I think is is a flawed kind of policy approach, um, because if we're going to tackle these issues, if we're actually going to stop an incident like Buffalo, um, uh, we need to have our police um, trained and, and capable of engaging these terrorist and extremist threats. 
So, you know, I, I'd be kind of curious to hear your thoughts. You kind of were, uh, you know, pushing back on the rabbi there a little bit in terms of the uh, ADL and the role. And you had made the argument that, uh, you know, these beliefs are baked in, right? You're not going to be able to change an individual's ideology and worldview. Um, you know, what do you think in terms of policy approaches and solutions to the, the rise of right wing extremism today? I think it's important to push back on the speech. My interest here is that when you, when you look out, right, and you look at the current case in, in Russia and you look at the speech that the government, um, you know, sent out in order to propagandize the population about, you know, Nazis in, in Ukraine, that speech has had, as we've seen every day, the direct impact on troop behavior in Ukraine, right, to war crimes. When you look at Rwanda, you look at the, the, the importance of, radio stations and what these disc jockeys were saying as, as deriving the actual timing of the genocide in Rwanda. So I think it's, it's not a question that speech leads to behavior when it's allowed to go too far in content and spread too far in terms of its audience. So I really like the idea that, that 100 years ago, you know, the Anti-Defamation League figured that out and said, at every point that we hear this kind of speech, we have to counter it. And we're countering it as a private organization, so we're not violating free speech, but we have to say this speech, in our opinion, approaches the point of inciting violence. So I think that's, that's critically important. The question of you know, what's policy, right? what should the government do, is a much harder question because we can't cross that First Amendment line, which, of course, is a, is a contested line, but the government you know, wants to stay back from it to, to some degree. And so I, I find that really interesting, and I find the idea that what you have to do as the ADL or as Black Lives Matter, right, or any other organization is to draw a fence and to say, we can't stop the speech, but we can fence it in, right? And we can highlight it. And, so, and, and to some extent, we can let it get really big on the other side of that fence. And then the two thirds of the population that's on our side of the fence looks at it and says, that's crazy talk, right? And it's sort of immunized against it um, because both of the fence and because of the, the constant shaming that organizations like ADL do. I think that's critical to understand uh, as we go forward in the internet age, right, in the social media age, when, when these voices become so plentiful that we can't attack them one by one like the ADL used to do, right? Politician says X in his speech and it's anti-Semitic and we're going to, you know, produce a, a press release and call him out. That doesn't work anymore. Yeah, I I think that uh, that's true. And it kind of goes back to my question. I asked him uh, about, you know, what at the tactical level of what do we do in terms of exposing the speech? And, you know, there's debate. Do we, you know, after Charlottesville in particular, do we uh, highlight and share this anti-Semitic and racist speech and, you know, that there are not find people on both sides, right? That we need to expose what the other side is. Um, or talking about what Fox News does with Tucker Carlson and a great replacement theory, um, that this is not a benign kind of idea uh, or concept that should be shared lightly on national news. And so I think exposing, or as you said, kind of drawing the line in the sand, you know, this is what that kind of worldview stands for. Which side of that line do you then fall on? Are you comfortable uh, with that? Um, and that's something that Fox News needs to come to grips with um, whether or not they're morally comfortable with this notion of great replacement theory just being tossed around on nightly news, national nightly news like that. And I, I'm an optimist here. 
I think that the republic is resilient. I think in the end, there's a portion of the public that is uh, that will fall into these these beliefs, but then it sort of burns itself out like a forest fire. Um, and and it can get ugly and messy. But I think most of American politics has been ugly and messy and has been infected by this kind of speech. If you look back at the 19th century, for instance, and it's only been the post-war period since 1945 where you had this sort of this quieting down uh, of this speech. And now it's picking back up again. And I think it's, it's perverting to the norm, uh, really. But I'm, I'm an optimist in this case. We have to do what we have to do in order to, in order to push back on it, right, and tone it down and, and maybe prevent some of it. But in the end, I don't think we're headed towards civil war anytime soon. Okay, so let's leave it with optimism then. I like that. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode uh, of Impolitik. Uh, and I want to uh, especially thank our guest, um, Rabbi Fish, for his time uh, and joining us today. Uh, and uh, encourage all our listeners to check out the Anti-Defamation League and support their efforts. Please be sure to also like and subscribe uh, and for uh, future episodes of Impolitik. And please be sure to give us a rating as well. It really helps us out. Thank you very much, everybody. And until next time, thank you for listening.